So that's the reason why we have uh, a sukkah, is because to commemorate uh, the booths that the Jewish people uh, lived in um, during the time right after the Exodus. Now, I want to share with you guys, just to open up the discussion here, I want to share with you guys uh, a, a statement in the Talmud. It's actually a really long Talmud. Maybe you guys have heard of it. Maybe you haven't. It's, it's kind of famous. It's in the book of Avodah Zarah. Avodah Zarah means idolatry. And the subject matter of the book is idolatry, but it deals with a lot, kind of, the relationship between the Jews and the non-Jews. And kind of, because whenever uh, the book starts off with, every time you're engaging with a non-Jew, at least in the times past, uh, you don't know what he's going to use the things you're going to sell him, right? So you can you sell, uh, I don't know, candles or libations to a Gentile that you know they're going to use that for idolatry, or you suspect heavily. Uh, so the Talmud starts talking about um, some futuristic events or future events uh, of what's going to be once uh, the Messiah comes and then the Gentiles come and say, we want a slice of the action. And the Almighty is going to start having, they, 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 they talk about the destruction the Almighty is going to have with them, and they're going to say, oh, what do you guys do? And every, every nation is trying to say, well, we did this, we did that, and we had good intentions, and we're trying to support the Jews and uphold Torah and bring the idea of God into the world. And the Almighty responds in a very, very long and intricate uh, uh, Talmud. And in the air, it gives us, um, at, all, to, all the way towards the end of this particular very long uh, narrative, it tells that what the Almighty is going to do is going to give the Gentiles an offer. Okay, well, you know what? We'll give you a chance to prove yourselves. What are we going to do? We'll give you one mitzvah. We'll give you one mitzvah, and the mitzvah is the mitzvah of sukkah. And why are we going to give the mitzvah of sukkah? It's because the mitzvah of sitting in a sukkah is easy. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. All you need is a few branches, some temporary structure. All you need is very cheap. I could, okay, but it's still. Thomas says it's not. It's not expensive. You know, this is fancy. We're in a fancy circle right now, <laughs> right? That's what it says. And it says that what's going to be the Gentiles. Are, everyone immediately is going to build a circle on the roof. Everyone, and then the Almighty is going to make it so hot and so unbearingly hot that all the people are going to get out. All the Gentiles and get out of the circle and be so frustrated with it, give it a kick. And go back inside the air conditioned houses. And the Talmud responds, and the Gemara is going to say, Oh, you see, you couldn't even fulfill one mitzvah. And then the Talmud asks, Well, wait a minute. Uh, we know the halacha is, if let's say it starts raining here, let's say it starts raining right now, what do we do? We go inside. Why? If we are suffering, if we're in pain, if we're uncomfortable in the sukkah, then we are allowed to leave. So if it's super hot, we're allowed to leave. So the fact the Almighty made it so hot, right, that gave the legitimate reason to leave the circa. So why is this a, a proof uh, that the Gentiles are incapable of fulfilling mitzvahs? The Talmud responds, because, yeah, they, they should have left the circa, but they shouldn't have kicked it in disgust. That's the Talmud. Now, obviously, if you read this, something's going on here. There's, there's, there's some meaning behind this simplistic understanding. Uh, what I, we want to focus on specifically is why, what, what about sukkah is so unique that it is going to be the litmus test of, of the Gentiles. 
because, you know, there's a lot of mitzvahs that are, are inexpensive. You know, go visit the sick. It's a mitzvah in the Torah to visit the sick. Uh, and does that cost money? You got to pay for the train ride or the, the Uber to the hospital or whatever. So, yeah, maybe it does cost some, but it's a relatively inexpensive mitzvah. There's a lot of mitzvahs that we could have used, right? It's not just that. It's to wear tzitzis. What does it cost to buy a pair of tzitzis? $5, $10? Uh, there's a lot of things that we could have used. Say the Shema. We talked so much about the Shema. And the Shema is such an important declaration of what we believe as Jews. Give the Gentiles the mitzvah saying the Shema. That's free. Talk is cheap. So what, what, what about, why is, why is Sukkah the representative mitzvah of, uh, of, of kind of demonstrating the capability of the Gentiles of, you know, of, of upholding God or proving themselves? Well, the mixed multitude are the Jews. They're part of the Jews. Uh, it, this is the, the, all the Gentiles, it, it seems to say. So it's not just, it's not just the, the, you know, the Jews that are not biologically, quote-unquote, Jewish. It seems very bizarre. There's a lot of mitzvahs we could have plugged in. Uh, and, and, and I think when we really um, unbundle this idea, we'll find not only a core idea of what sukkah is all about, what is the meaning behind sitting in this booth for seven days out of the year? You know, it's like, think about this. It's, uh, I don't know, do the math here. It's 2% of the year, we're told, go, leave your house, move into the booth. And there's meaning. We've been doing it for years and years, for thousands of years, multiple thousands of years. And, and what's the meaning behind that? And not only that, I think there's also a lesson that goes beyond sukkah at something which is all-encompassing about what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be God-fearing, that this is what's used as the litmus test. So that's the question. That's the way maybe the angle to, to approach uh, this discussion. Um, so let's, uh, let, let, let's examine the sukkah. So what's the sukkah? How, how would we describe it? little hut with some branches on top. Okay, little hut. It's a dwelling place of sorts, right? Well, what distinguishes this from the house? Temporary. It's temporary. It's not waterproof. It's open. It has three sides. Well, three sides. You know, some houses are. It's see-through. It's see-through. Okay, so it's temporary. It's see-through. It's 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 open. It's it's not waterproof. You know, you know, there's no mezuzah. How can you have a Jewish house without a mezuzah? Is this a Jewish house or is this a Jewish temporary house? Temporary. Well, that's true. I agree. You're right. It's temporary. I mean, that's the key. You know what the Talmud says? This is a temporary house. And for seven days a year, we say, leave your permanent house, abandon your permanent house, and move into a temporary house. That's what sukkah is all about. Now, I want to zip forward to a different holiday. And there's another holiday, another central holiday, the holiday of Passover. And there's a mitzvah of Passover. What's the core mitzvah of Passover? It's, well, matzah? it's the matzah. That's, that, that's the mitzvah, to eat, to eat matzah. Right? Eat matzah, yes. Chametz, no. Right? Eat this kind of food, not that kind of food, for seven days. So we see kind of a little bit of a, little bit of a parallel. The seven-day holidays, we're told uh, on, on Sukkot, don't live in your house, live over here. Like live in this, I would say it's substandard. You know, this is not, if I took a picture of this and said this is where people live, you would say, not exactly for the world. 
you know, this is not a first world world housing. But, but the Torah says, do that, don't do this, do that, don't 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 live in your permanent house, move into, you know, uh, this nice hut. But this is not. This is temporary. Uh, on the, this holiday and the holiday of of Passover, it tells us something kind of similar. It says, don't eat this kind of food, eat that kind of food. And if you took a picture of matzah, you say, this is what people eat: little flat crackers, like that's all they eat. Uh, but all the delicious foods of the world, you know, that they cannot have. You would say uh, something similar. Like, this is not, this is a substandard food. You know, if you were to analyze the ingredients of matzah, it's the simplest food. It's just flour and water, nothing else. And once it seems, it seems like the Torah is telling us, you know, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, what is it? Downsize, that's the word. Downsize. Is that, is that what it is? Is, is? is it all about maybe humility? What do you guys say about that? Is it humility? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's about humility. Downsize. Don't live in the big house. You know? See how everyone else lives. You know? Go back to nature. Don't eat the fancy foods. Don't eat the, uh, the, the exciting, appealing, alluring bread that looks all nice and fluffy. Eat simple foods. Maybe that's an idea. What do you guys say about that? Six out of ten? Five? Seven. Seven, okay, good. That, 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 that's an idea, you know? Now, I want to introduce you guys to another thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stream this all back together, I promise, before we're done here. The Talmud tells us something very strange. Talmud says uh, that the Yetzer Ra, the evil inclination, it gives it a name. And if I were to guess, you know what the evil inclination is? The evil inclination, the thing that makes us want to sin. What, what nickname are we going to give him, asked the Talmud? What, what name can we give him? What name would you think, uh, Rigo? What, what name would we say? Evil inclination. The guy, the uh, proverbial guy in the left shoulder. Right? Huh? Satan, okay. Satan, you call him. Evil. Fire. Sin. Well, what would you call him? Oh, come on. We're not going there. <laughs> well, what would we call I would, That's what I would say. I would say. I would say first Satan maybe, then evil, then fire, and then sin and uh, bad, you know? And it's and also a drive, right? It's also what? Drive. It's a drive. Well, that's what it does. It drives us. It propels us to want to sit. Contrary uh, spirits. That's what you would say. Like the, all these names of the Talmud. You know what? I'm going to say with this is the Talmud of Bracho 17a. The nickname we're going to give for the Yetzirah is Yeast. Yeast. And the question is why? Like, what about Yeast? You know, what, what about, you know, so, you know, why is Yeast something, is it so evil to have bread? Just because Yeast rep, uh, represents your ego? Maybe. So, yes, yeah, so maybe that, that goes back to what we said earlier, that maybe the, maybe the matzah is about humility, and the Yeast is about just being pompous and arrogant. Maybe I like this a good idea. I want to introduce here an idea here. Let's just let's. And I'll, I promise you, I will bring this full circle. There will be some payoff here at the end, hopefully. I don't promise. I pledge. <laughs> we we know if you were to take bread and matzah, and you were to measure them and weigh them, not weigh them, but to 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 analyze them, inspect them, nutritionally they're the same. You have bread, which is flour, water, and yeast. And matzah is flour and water. What does the yeast add? Nutritionally, nothing. 
The only thing that yeast does is that it takes matzah and turns it into bread. It takes nutrition and turns it into an experience. That's what it does. It takes nutrition and turns it into something of its own value. If someone eats matzah, what could be the only reason why someone would possibly want to eat matzah? Really, if it's like, not Passover. Right, you need food. That's it. Right? It's, it's not like, you know, no one fantasizes about matzah. Bread is something that you would eat because, look at it, it's so appealing, it's so fluffy, it's so, it's so, it's so beautiful. It's an experience. I, I don't know the passages, but, um, you know, in the Torah of Moses and Abraham, yeah, he mocks So what were the reasons? What were the commandments? Well, we've had this discussion before. I First of all, yeah, it. we've had it. You've spoken about it before. You're repeating content. It's okay. I've done it before in the past as no, well. No, no, no. I don't remember why. No, no, no. You're saying because I remember you know the commandments already before it was given to the Torah. I'm not asking that question. Well, Okay. But you, you, what you're referring to is when, when the uh, when the the angels disguised as people came to Abraham, Abraham prepared for them matzos. That, that wasn't and, during Pesach. And well, the Talmud says it was. Oh, okay. Then I withdraw my question. I didn't know it was during Pesach. All right, forget it. Yeah, but it, but matzah could also mean, um, I guess maybe maybe it was a, maybe it was a, a common food. I don't know, but it seems likely that was Pesach. Anyhow. So, so like this, huh? I'm just joking. So like this, guys. When we look at our life in its current iteration, we look at life here on planet Earth, the big mistake that we make or we are liable to make is we think this is all there is. When you make that mistake, you think this is all there is, and then everything you can partake in in this world is a value unto its own. This is, what, this is all we got. The core idea of Judaism is that this world is a passageway before another world. You're here for a limited amount of time, and then after you're dead, your body's put on the ground, and your soul lives on. And your soul is measured by the quality of actions, of mitzvahs that you did in this world. Comes along the Yetzer, what does he tell us? He says, don't think about what's going to be in the next world. Don't think about your soul. Look at this, we have a whole life to live. We've got to go make the money, got to have the fancy house, fancy car, you got lavish foods. That's what he tells us. And in reality, we know that that's not going to last, right? Because 70, 80 years down the line, we're dead, and what's the value of having the fancy house and the fancy car and all those sizzling steaks? But the Yetzirah does, he takes the matzah, he takes this world, sustenance, food, nutrition that we need just to keep our body alive to do mitzvos, and turns it into an ideal, turns it into a value unto its own. That's what he does. And therefore, our life is a constant struggle between the reality that the Torah tells us this world is merely a passageway before the grand ballroom of next world. And what the Yetzirah tells us, that no, this is the only world we've got, this is the one we have to maximize. This is the only way to think of. All our strategies, all our tactics, our agenda has to be oriented on this world. And we know this. We know that we naturally feel like all our thoughts and our strategies and our efforts ought to be oriented to try and improve our lot in this world. Where does that come from? 
That's the fantasy of the Yetzirah, where he tells us that this world, which really ought to be matzah, we are to partake in it only to give us fuel to do what it is we need to do in our journey. Wow, we got that on tape. <laughs> I assume it's not me. <laughs> Just for the listeners who may be listening, uh, we are outside here and there's a dog next door that uh, seems to be inspired by our words. <laughs> so so that's what the Yetzirah is. Yetzirah is putting this fantastical lens, so to speak, on our perspective on life. That's what the tactic of the Yetzirah is. To take this world and all the pleasures that we have in this world and to turn them not as a, uh, a means but to make them an end. Everything in this world, every, every physical and material pursuit, right, we have to ask ourselves the question. If we really believe that this world is merely a passageway before the next world, like the Torah says, in a, in a multitude of different ways, if that's what we really believe, then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, okay, why are we focusing so heavily on the preliminary, uh, the ineffectual, the, the, the really not so important, not lasting aspects of our lives, and perhaps ignoring uh, or, or, or misappropriating uh, our, our perspectives and our thoughts and our efforts uh, for what really is important. That is a product of the Yetzirah, where he takes the matzah, the proverbial matzah, which is every, which everything that we actually need and turns it into a value unto its own. Thus, the Talmud says we can find no better description for the Yetzirah than yeast. And, that's the, and, and, and it comes along the holiday of Passover every year, and we spend seven days and we say, you know what, we're eating, we're eating matzah. And it's, 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 you're chewing crackers, and it get, it's, like, it's like sawdust. You know, it's not, it's, not, you know it's, not, it's not bread. And then afterwards you come back to bread and you'll feel delighted, right? But when we eat matzah every year, we're supposed to think about the fact that we are all here and our life here as physical bodies connected to our soul. We have a shelf life. No one, do you, does anyone here know anyone that's lived for more than 150 years or even 120 years or 110 years? No. Anyone knows? Jim, you know anyone like that? So we're all, and, and what about here? Do you, do, does any one of us think that we're going to outlast 100, 100, maybe 100 years, you know, today? Yeah, 100 years, but 130, anyone thinks they're going to outlast that? Maybe. Hopefully. 500 years. Uh, I doubt that. It's very doubtful. Well, no, I saw something on TV uh, last month. Uh, I had a nano... Nano... Nanoscience, yeah. That was, it's very seriously. He was saying that there is someone that was born already that could potentially live past 500 years, thanks to nanotechnology. Okay, maybe, but... <laughs> Don't call me crazy if I'm a little but dubious. I've seen, I've seen an that's 500 years. Okay, we're, but we're all eventually going to die. That's the curse of humanity. And that's the reality that we're all terrified of. Uh, why are we terrified of that reality? Because that reality hammers home the fact that our life here is temporary. And therefore our efforts, are, we're investing so much. You know what it's always like? It's like, you know what they have now, the whole climate change discussion? We're not going to talk about climate change. But you think about that, that beachfront home 
where every six months the you know the tides coming in further and further and further. I just saw today, today. Huh? Today on the news. I just saw a story in the news that there's a bunch of towns in Alaska that are just. Uh, they don't care about 80 years. They just want to buy. And, yeah. Well, so let me ask you guys a question. Does it make sense to, as a builder of homes, to say, you know what? I'm going to go build a house because it's cheap real estate, right? I'm going to go build a house on the beach. I'll have a beachfront house. And you put in your efforts, but you know that in six to eight months, or even six to eight years, the house will be underwater. And you can go swim in it like a, the coral reefs. Does it make sense to do that? Anyone? Does anyone think that's a good idea? Well, you no. have plenty of time with it. Yeah, but to invest so much and get such a, so little out of it, that's really what we do in our lives. In our lives, we invest so much. How many hours a day are we spending trying to stockpile cash? or like, And how little are we thinking about the actual long term? And that is our soul is eternal. If our soul is eternal, then that is what we should do the majority of our efforts and, and, you know, invest. And this is a hard thing. I, 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 don't, I don't want to feel like I'm castigating anyone here. This is for humanity. All humanity, right, we have a Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah changes the perspective, the real perspective, to, to, you know, to, to, to this uh, assumed perspective uh, that this is the world we have to invest in. And then comes along the holiday of, of Sukkot. What do we say? I'm going to leave the permanent house. Permanent, right? How permanent is it really? <laughs> right? But I think it's permanent, right? This is your permanent dwelling, right? Maybe you'll buy a house in a couple of years, but the house will stand, right? You'll rent it out. Will you sell it? This is the permanent house. Say, Medeiros Kava, says the Talmud. Abandon your permanent house and move into this little hut. Now, the hut's pretty comfortable. But like you said, it's not waterproof. It's small. It's not permanent. We don't even put the mezuzahs on. And we do this for seven. It's a seven-day exercise. And it's a seven-day exercise that will hopefully take us throughout the year, or at least until next Passover, we have another exercise. It's another seven-day exercise. And it's a seven-day exercise of the realization of internalizing the idea that we're not here permanently. We're temporary in this world. And that, and that, and that is combating our Yetzirah. That's battling our Yetzirah. And that's going to change our perspective. And you know what? If you guys will be honest with me, you'll, you'll say that this is not a comfortable thing to talk about. It's, it's a little bit uncomfortable to hear this. Uh, because what we're essentially saying, and, and these are things that are based in reality, right? But we're essentially saying that a lot of what we're doing in our lives is an exercise in futility. Because God knows we're all investing a lot of time in, you know, in our looks, Right? How, how is that going to last? Right in our in our homes, in our cars, and all the things that are oriented in this world. And unfortunately, all, mo- most of us or most of humanity is neglecting the the permanent uh, aspect of themselves. It's not comfortable to hear that. And you know what? We don't spend more than seven days here in the sukkah. And you know what? It can be not comfortable in the sukkah as well. It's not comfortable. Uh, but the idea is such a powerful idea, says the Torah, abandon your permanent home, go live in a temporary dwelling. And then when you're in the temporary dwelling, you think about your life. And you ask yourself these questions. Okay, I'm, I'm going to live another hundred years. Well, what happens then? Well, then I'm going to die. Well, what happens after you die? Gee, I don't know. <laughs> what happens after you die? She we don't... comes, you come back, and you get your house back. <laughs> well, that's what we would like to think. That's what we'd like. We'd like to think of, the, of of this. Oh, maybe we could cling to this physical world as being permanent. 
we really want that. Uh, but, you know, I'm not so sure if your model actually is correct. Uh, but we are told, this is, this is, I think, comforting, we're told that the Jewish soul, or even souls at large, not just Jewish, souls are uh, permanent. Someone has a soul, their consciousness doesn't die when their body dies. And that is heartwarming. You know, that's, that's refreshing. That's inspiring. To know that it's not just a race to the end. And what is the end? It's just a drop in the abyss. You know, there is life and vitality that we will live on. We have this legacy. Not only in this world, but not, not only for our kids and stuff like that. Not just in, in, in the deeds that we did here, but ourselves we will continue. I think that, that's, that's tremendously inspiring. But that's what the holiday is about. Holiday is when we take the seven days to really investigate these questions and say, okay, what part of my life am I doing to further my permanent goals, not just the temporary goals? Because you know what? This house, the permanent one, and this house, the temporary one, are just different grades of temporariness. This one maybe is 70 years, and this is seven days. But they're both temporary. By dint of the fact that they're both physical. In the physical world, everything is temporary. So, that's what we're doing here. You know, and ask ourselves the questions. On the holiday, what can we do to invest in our permanent life? We have a soul that is impregnable. That nothing can happen to it. You know, you could shoot the Jew. You can't shoot the Jewish spirit. You know, no matter how bad, gory, grisly someone's death is, their soul lives on. There's nothing that you could do to destroy a soul. Uh, God could, maybe. That's, you know, that, that's another discussion. The idea of Kares, where it's possible for someone's soul to actually get destroyed. Uh, but mostly, it's almost ha, ha, you can't destroy a soul. It's 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 not something that takes the grasp uh, that that's grasped in material and physical realities. It can't be destroyed with material and physical tools. So, I want to give you guys a, a tangential idea here. Tell me what you guys think about it. We find another discussion in the Talmud. Um, this one is in... Uh, gosh, where's this one? This one also in Brachos. I think it's in 5. And it says, how do you, how do you fight, how do you defeat your Yetzirah, your evil inclination? Like we said earlier, the evil inclination is the thing that compels us to sin. And the way it does that is on a micro and a macro level. Micro level, it makes us want to sin just you know, like that, just, you see a sin, you, you know, you're compelled, you're desired, you have, you have desire, you have a passion, you have an urge to sin, and then there's the macro, which is like the big life, big picture, what am I going to do with my life, and like we said, the Yetzirah makes us believe that this world is all that we ought to invest in. So how do you battle it? How do you fight it? How do you defeat it? And now this question has been asked multiple times in the Talmud, and there's many different answers, so it's interesting if you were to actually collect them all, like I did, and analyze them each on their own on their own merit. Because many different places in the town where it gives asks the same question gives different answers. It seems like there's maybe multiple realms of battle that we have with the Yitzhara. You know, some of it we could uh, redirect, 
redirect the effort. Some of it we could just fight it head on. Either way, the Talmud asks the question, what do we do to battle the Yetzirah? And it says, what you do is, you fight back. How do you fight back? With the Yetzir Tov. The Almighty gives you a good inclination and a bad inclination. Look at the proverbial good guy on the one shoulder, bad guy on the other shoulder. Fight back. Don't be a sitting duck. Don't be, don't throw like sheep to the slaughter. Fight back. Well, how do you fight back? You fight with the Yetzir Tov. How does that work? You have to take the power of the Yetzir Tov and overwhelm the Yetzir Ra. You have to align the interests of the Yetzir Ra. You have to compel your body to do what's right as well. If you guys remember, we spoke about charity here. You guys remember we spoke about charity here a few weeks, or it must have been a few months ago. And when we invoke the Talmud, the Talmud says, if someone says, I'm going to give money to charity in order that my child gets healthy, and it's a child, God forbid, that person is a holy, righteous person. And the question is, well, aren't there better reasons to give charity? Isn't altruism an important ideal in Judaism? Shouldn't it be that the most, the best way to give charity is to give charity and not expect anything in return? Why does the Talmud say that the best kind of charity, the guy who's completely righteous, is the person who says, I want to give charity, but I don't want to give it, just, you know, I have conditions. There's some strings attached. Well, what are the strings? Okay, God, I want in the merit of my charity, my son gets better. Yeah, that seems like it's a nice mitzvah. It's still charity, but ideally you should do it without it. No strings attached. That's what we would have thought. What actually is going on over here is a battle between the two people on the shoulders, the two forces that the Almighty gives each one of us. Your Yetzir Tov, your good inclination, wants to give charity. Your evil inclination does not want you to give charity. Now, why would he not want you to give charity? Because giving charity is giving away money. Money could be used to buy more swag. Swag, you like that. Uh, Right? So less money equals less materialism equals the Yetzirah doesn't like that. Yetzirah Tov, all the Yetzirah Tov is thinking about, well, what, what's better for your soul? Well, your soul, to do something uh, charitable and kind, well, that's something very valuable. Well, so how do you make the entrance are aligned? Your problem, the reason why we struggle to do mitzvahs is because we have opposing forces. We have a conflict. Well, how do we make that there's no conflict? How do we align the interests of our body, of our Yetzirah, with the interests of our soul and the eternal? We have to stack the, uh, stack the, uh, the scale. Well, how do you stack the scale? How do you make it that also your physical iteration wants to give charity? Well, you know what you do? You attach some strings to the charity. You make that the charity is going to go towards something that your body wants as well, that your physical body wants as well, and that's, that's the health of your child. That's essentially what you did was you made it much easier to give charity by making that both of the forces, of the inclinations, of the urges in your life are both arguing for you to give charity. Your body, your physical iteration, and your spiritual iteration. Well, then it's very easy to give charity. That's what the Talmud advises you. How do you battle Yetzirah? Find a way that the Yetzirah told me Yetzirah agree. Brilliant. Well, what if that doesn't work? What are the contingency plans? Well, Talmud asks the question as well. <laughs> the Talmud says, well, what if it doesn't work? 
well, you know what? I'll give you another idea. Study Torah. Well, what if that doesn't work? Read the Kriya Shema. Read the Shema. Well, what if that doesn't work? What's the poison pill? What's the last resort? What's the military option? <laughs> That's maybe what I would have thought, right? It seems to go in the ritual, in the ritual uh, uh, pattern. What is the best antidote for the Yetzirah? Yastir lo yomamisa. Remind him of the day of death. Think about the fact that you are mortal, that you will die, and then you shall vanquish your Yetzirah, your evil inclination. Do you know why? Because anytime you realize that your life here is on a shelf life, you're not going to live forever, this world, this physical reality, this physical manifestation, this material life, that we, the world that we live in, that's all coming, coming to an end. Right? There's going to be a conclusion for each one of us in this world. Once you realize that point, once that point actually penetrates your heart, the Yetzirah has got no more power. Why? Because then, of course, you should value that that is permanent over that that is temporary. If you are stuck in the corner, if, if, you're, if, if you're surrounded, this is the last option, the military option, right? The military option, this is the last thing that comes to the table. Why? Because this is the poison pill. This is the one that's got, that's got to work. Because our orientation here as making our, our, our temporary life a number one priority is only when we lose sight of the fact that it's temporary. Once we actually realize that we're going to die, thus proving to ourselves that this world is nothing but, more, nothing, nothing but uh, a temporary life, well, then it's very easy to, to, to invest in our future, to invest in the permanent to vanquish the Yetzirah. I'm going to show you guys some, some cool tidbits here. And uh, I'm trying to think of a way to say this in a PG-13 way. You guys stop me if I'm going too far, okay? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the... Um, there's this uh, Jewish song that uh, very interesting song that is essentially a dialogue between between two twins in utero. So, two babies, two twins, they're in the uterus and they're having a discussion, and one brother says, "Oh, you know, this is the world we've got." Look around, right? This is all we got. It's only you and me. This is our existence. That's what one brother says. The other brother says, "No, there's a whole big world out there. You know, we're you know we're this tiny little cocoon, just you and me. It's pretty stuffy and claustrophobic, but there's a whole huge world out there. And what we see now, our perspective now is very limited. Right? We're we're just we're just knotted up." And one day we'll be exposed to this grand world and this, you know, there's other people out there and this 
different worlds out there. This, this, you know, the, the, the earth is so big and different continents and different states. And I drove across America and the place is huge. <laughs> and that's when one brother says, no, you're silly. You're so naive. The other one respond, other brothers respond, you're so naive. It's just you and me. You believe this nonsense. There's some other world out there that we can't see. And they have this argument back and forth. And finally, one of them is born. And the brother is left inside there. He's like, oh gosh, my brother died. Forever, I'm alone. That's it. It's just, this is all we've had. And now my only companion, he's gone. And the other brother is responding to him, no, you got it all wrong. I'm not dead. I was just born. And soon you'll be here with me in this world to come. That's actually the line. Soon you'll be here with me in this world to come. That's the story. That's the song. Beautiful song, right? Yeah. Now, it's a Jewish song, right? Does it have any sources? That's the question that Ben always asks me. Where are the sources? What's sources? Source. Source, not Perhaps sauce. Does mean that we, where you, where you we all it? live in the universe? That's a metaphor. No, I mean, it's, it's a metaphor. That's right. Yeah. There's a metaphor, the, the fact that there's multiple worlds and our perspective is limited. And obviously it's implying that we're in this world and it's a little bit more expansive than the uterus, but the Torah tells us that this is just a passageway before the next world. Which could be the entirety of outer space. We don't know. Or maybe it's just something even totally beyond. Maybe something totally beyond. Just different rules. Either way, that is the song. And I think I found some sources. I think I found some sources. Listen to what I found, guys. This is such interesting um, discoveries. At least I think so. So, Hebrew, language Hebrew. There is a name in Jewish sources for this language. It's called Lashon HaKodesh, which means the holy language. And throughout Jewish writings, when it talks about Hebrew, it calls it Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language. And why would it be called Lashon HaKodesh? Well, you say, well, the Torah is written in Hebrew. The Talmud even says that the Almighty created the world with the Hebrew letters. What that means is a great mystery. Like, for example, it says, the, Torah, the world was created with a hay. Right? The hay's letter looks like this. Right? Or like this. Like that. But not closed. Why? Says the Talmud, why is the top, why is the world created with a hay? Because if someone is in the middle, right over here, right, and they fall out, well, they could come back on top through that little opening. What that means, I think, is a great mystery. It's a great question. But either way, that's perhaps a reason why it's called the holy language. Comes along Maimonides, and he says the reason why Hebrew is holy is because. There are no words for the reproductive organs. That's why it's holy. Which I think is interesting. Okay. <laughs> it's okay, fine. Okay. I will accept that. Maimonides, he is a proven track record. That's what he says. <laughs> That's why it's called holy. I, I, I see, it seems to be less exciting, I guess. Either way, that's the, and that's the truth, by the way. When we talk about uh, the parts of the Talmud that deal with uh, prim- especially a women's uh, reproductive system, 
it uh, it has to use metaphors, it has to use euphemisms to describe because there's actually no Hebrew words to describe the various uh, organs and pipes and you know there's no there's no words for them in Hebrew. That's what Latin is for. Huh? That's what Latin is for. Well, maybe, but that's the Hebrew language. That's a, you know, that's the Hebrew language. Either way, so what I found was something very interesting. What I found, there's a famous teaching in the book of Pirkei Avot, of Chapters of the Fathers, where it says... Whoa. I was waiting for that to happen. <laughs> well, it happened. Good thing we're outside in So the, the Talmud says, Ha'olam this world is like a prosdar in front of next world. Which means... This world is like a, a hallway or a, uh, a corridor in front of natural, which is the Traklin, which is the grand ballroom. Haskin Prepare yourself in the prosdar in the hallway in the in the corridor leading to the grand ballroom. Which once again is the idea that we've been speaking about all night here. And that is that this world is temporary and it's just a passageway to the next world. Fast forward to the Mishnah in the Book of Nida. The Book of Nida has to really find workarounds to Maimonides' Lashon Kodesh holy language problem. Because the Book of Nida deals with, amongst other things, primarily a woman's menstrual cycle. And therefore, invariably, it's going to have to actually talk about some of the uh, hardware, if you will the anatomical realities. And it uses metaphors. And you know what word it uses for what's called, we call it the birth canal? What word does it use? Booyah, prosdar. Drops the mic, walks off stage. (laughs) Booyah! (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Same Hebrew word. Thus, the same Hebrew word that is used to describe a hallway or a a corridor in front of the next world describes the paths a baby takes out into the world. That seems interesting. It sounds like a nice source, huh? And And then something else. Maybe we should skip this. Uh, no, let's not skip it. We're not going to skip that here. What word does it use for the uterus? So, huh? Or like. No, no, no. It's not that easy. <laughs> Why not? Suka. That's where he hangs out. <laughs> Temporary for nine months. Well, 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 what happens there? Well, something goes in there, right? Yeah. And then it develops and it progresses and it grows and it sprouts and it matures and suddenly you have a baby, something entirely different, right? It's like a pot. Mm-hmm. It, well, it, but it's not really a pot. It's much more. It's much, well, oh, oh. What else do we know that goes in the ground? and? It sounds like a seed, right? It sounds like the earth. Ah. Mm, very interesting. Well, 
okay, but what, what's the critical difference between putting a seed in the ground and putting a seed in the uterus? Huh? Well, well, there's no dirt. That's true, but no. But the seed, the the, sea, the the difference is, is that one of them is we're talking about a human, and one of them is talking about a plant or a tree, right? Are we? Huh? I don't get the whole seed. <laughs> seed? Yeah, I don't get why. I'm just saying, Marlene. Mar- Marlene suggested. That that uh, the term we should use for a uterus is like the ground, because what happens there is somewhat similar to what happens in the ground, right? You put a seed in, and then something else grows out of it. That's what she said, and, and I'm saying, well, what's the difference? The difference. I mean, I'm just I'm I'm rebutting. I'm trying to rebut. Uh, what? Oh, because we 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 because you you don't have the foreskin. Yeah, you don't have the foreskin. Yeah, you don't have the plant. Well, you have to plant to the ground. You have to find a fertile ground. And you gotta prepare it. <laughs> you gotta. Either way, let me tell you what the Talmud says. The Talmud calls the Talmud calls a uh, a uterus a kever. What does a kever mean? A grave. Oh my gosh! That's weird, right? Perhaps what it's saying is that you were right. It's about putting something in the ground and something else emerges. But it's not a plant. It's actually a human. And we put it in the ground and we believe with absolute and complete faith that it will emerge. That's exactly right. It's incredible. So... It's it's why we bury people, and also we we don't believe that when someone dies, when someone stops breathing or stops heart stops pounding or brain activity stops, they're done for forever. No, they're gonna put in the ground, and we believe they'll come back out again. The soul continues. The soul continues exactly. And you know what? I would even argue that it's it's actually very similar to what you said. You do drop some seed in the ground and something emerges. And I would say, does the same thing emerge or not? No. Not the exact same thing, no. It's it's well it's it's, it's it's the same I would say it's the same biological material, but it's very developed. Won't we say? I would say the same thing, the spiritual energy that dies when we die is going to reemerge or continue existing, maybe not exactly the way it was previously, but just amplified a million percent. If you were to take a drop of, of biological reproductive matter and analyze it, you would find all the DNA necessary for humanity. You, you would find that. What's the... What's the difference? It's just that it's, yes, it's it's there theoretically, but that's that's not a human, right? Is it? I don't think so. Is that, is that a human? That's what makes you- yes, it, it, it's it's all there, so to speak, but it's there in theory. It's there potentially. It has to be. It has to be sprouted. It has to be expanded. It has to be amplified. I would say the same thing. Is that yes, a human that goes in the ground may emerge, but that human is akin to the seed that goes in, something will emerge. It may not look exactly like that. It may be amplified a million times. In fact, 
Go ahead. It talks about when you go to when, when you die, uh, or when you get resurrected. I don't know if that's where you're going, but get resurrected. The potentiality that we have from a spiritual perspective is now that's what we are. That potentiality, but now when we're reborn and, and right and, and, and everything <coughs> afterwards, uh, when God brings us back and raises the dead and everything, we have that. That's who we are, that spiritual essence with a body. Oh, oh yeah, but it's amplified. So, I would say it's amplified. Right, but I'm saying, so, so whatever we do now is is creating this... Absolutely, I did I did speak about that at great length. I believe... Yeah, you did. No, I think it was by uh, Brad's house. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we talked about that. Either way, that was my second uh, form of evidence, and then I have a third. And this is and this is the most explicit, um, I guess this idea in its most explicit. Well, I'm saying, not explicit in the way that we would be <laughs> averse to hearing. Was it was, but uh, these kids are mature. No? Just anatomy. PG thirteen. Yeah, it's. <laughs> it, yeah, but it's just anatomy, but it's his kids, right? So, <laughs> he but he signs off on it. Okay, I think we we did a good job. Uh, either way, <laughs> the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, I believe it's a 92 or 93a, I don't remember exactly, it's halfway towards, uh, 70% of the way down. So if you know exactly where it is, you can find it. It quotes a verse in Proverbs, Mishle. And the verse has a biz- really bizarre juxtaposition of two ideas. And it says as follows: it says, it says the grave and the narrow part of the of 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 the womb, basically. Sha'ol v'oserechem, and the Talmud asks the question: What, right, in the name of God, do these two things possibly have to do with each other? You know, what do they, what do they have to do with each other? And you may have guessed it. The answer is like this: Mazeh. Just like we all know that the narrow part of the room, something goes in and something something else comes out, so to the grave, something goes in and something else comes out. Thus, when we think of these ideas, and we're sitting in the sukkah, and we really have the potential of reframing our perspective on life at large. Uh, we, we're sitting in this temporary dwelling and we're thinking about the fact that this world is temporary. Sorry, was that, was that directed at me? Sorry. We're sitting in the temporary dwelling and we're really trying to let the idea penetrate our soul, our heart, our feelings, our consciousness, that we too are temporary in this current iteration. However, if it was just that, then okay, we're temporary and just such for us. But there's an alternative element of our reality that is our soul that's not temporary at all. Remember, if our soul was temporary, our body was temporary, we should all invest everything we have in this temporary world. They're a crucial point. The mere fact that we're temporary doesn't mean much in a vacuum, right? 
Let's assume we're temporary. So, okay, that means you have 70 years, or 80 years, or 100 years, or five, whatever the number we're going to give ourselves. The mere fact that we're temporary doesn't mean anything. It just means that we don't really have a lot of time to enjoy ourselves, or maximize, or take as much pleasure, or whatever it is we're trying to do. But the fact that we have dual elements, one temporary and one permanent, that means it's imperative upon us to invest as much as we can in the, in the, in, in the permanent and as least as we can in the, in the temporary. So I'm going to give you a, a practical example of Maimonides' rights. Maimonides, and I mentioned this uh, previously, I believe it was actually in this very same venue, a few feet inside. Maimonides tells us that we have to study Torah. And it's, but of course, no one can study Torah their whole life, their whole day, because how are you going to feed your family? How are you going to feed your family if you're just studying Torah? Well, you got to work. Well, okay, so you have to have some amount of time working, some amount of time. Sorry, it was by your house, Israel. I remember now exactly it was your house. You got to study Torah sometime, and you got to work sometime, right? You can't do, you can't do, you know, you can't just do one. You, gotta, you have to study Torah, of course, but you have to work as well. Okay, says Mamani, so what's, what's the breakdown of how many hours a day, so to speak, you're studying Torah, and how many hours a day you're working? He says, "Well, he's only given us twelve hours to work with. He's only given us twelve hours to twelve hours to work." He says, "Oh, well, you study Torah nine hours, and you work for three hours." Perfect. I it's wish. like the guy who wrote the uh, the four hour work week. <laughs> That's what he says. Now, obviously, for us, that doesn't seem very practical, but then he goes further, and he tells us, even while you're stu- you're working. You should be in your head thinking about Torah, studying. Which, obviously, that sounds really like you're, you're actually studying nine hours. You did nine hours of study. Now you're going for your three measly hours at the job. <laughs> Even then, the majority of your thoughts should not be about the job. should be about your... I hope you're not, like, not a surgeon, right? Be like, sorry, I'm just, yeah, I'm just busy. I'm thinking about some Torah. <laughs> But that, does that seem to be realistic for us? I, I would say probably not for most people. But the lesson I think is important. Maimonides, he has a much different world view than we do. The great leaders of the Jewish people, the great scholars, the great heroes of Jewish history, in their minds, it was so clear that this whole world, it's a sham. We got sold a battered goods. Because we're here temporarily, but we're going to be around permanently in our soul. And to him, it was so simple. That was that was so blatantly obvious. It was well known to everyone. It, it, it was a it was a truth that everyone accept, accepted. And therefore, if that was a truth that you really accepted, of course you have to invest at least seventy five percent of your time, right? Nine out of twelve hours studying Torah, investing in in, in your real self, of course. Why would you spend some 25% of your time investing in the part of you that's going to disappear? And even, even when you, you, you're forced just by the fact that we do have to eat and we do have to survive this physical world, you're forced to work. But even then, well, you shouldn't invest your whole thought into it, your whole life into it. Even then, it ought to be the majority of your thoughts should be oriented towards what's really important. So for Maimonides, this teaches us a lot about Maimonides, more than I would say is practical for us. 
it's showing what the proper perspective, what does it look like when you're, uh, when you're, ph- you're philosophically uh, aligned with reality. We all know that this is true. That, that's the frustrating thing about it. We know it's true. We know that we're not going to live forever. We know that come some, you know, come in a, few, in a few years, hopefully many, many, many years for us, we're going to die. Our body will stop working. And hopefully it'll be at the age of, I don't know, 100, you know, in perfect health or at least in decent health, surrounded by, you know, thousands of great-grandkids. Hopefully, right? But we never know, right? But we all know we're going to die. In the best way, in the worst way, we're all going to die. We all know that. And therefore, we have to really ask ourselves, is our behavior, is our priority, look at the second gym, is our priorities, is our perspective really aligned with reality? I think it's a legitimate question. Maimonides' perspective was aligned with reality, and therefore, if your perspective is aligned with reality, that's what it would look like. Trying to avoid hell. Avoid hell, or uh, if you if, if you do this, you get these these people up in heaven, or whatever. <clears throat> but it's so it's so nebulous. But the, the idea is more believable to have the soul, because everyone, we include the whole humanity. That others say, if you don't adapt this, then you're gonna go over there. You know, da, 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 you know. The Jews say the soul is for everyone, not just Jews. But we're not trying to proselytize. We're just saying. That's how it is. Mm-hmm. It makes so much sense to go towards something. It's just an attractive idea or concept. Building, not dodging bullets. Right. And, and it's a good point that you brought up that um, I think it's, uh, incidentally, uh, mankind is actually in pretty good standing because, you know, if you ask the Christians, uh, they'll say that, listen, if you accept JC as your Lord and Savior, you're good. Otherwise, you have eternal damnation, right? That's yeah. a billion people believe that. And then you have a billion Muslims that they say, uh, now you take this how, you know, how you exactly want to interpret it, but uh, every a Muslim will agree that there is an idea called Dar al-Islam and Dar, uh, Dar al-Kharb, which means the nation of Islam and nation of sword. And what does that mean? I don't know what it means. Sword? Maybe it's like one of those play swords. I don't know. Okay? <laughs> but all I know is that clearly it's not, you know, there's, there's us and then there's everyone else. Uh, and well, what does that mean? Those two are mutually exclusive. Those two have no overlap. In the Christians, if you don't believe in JC, and the Muslims, if you do believe in JC, right, either way, you're screwed. <laughs> so there's at least a billion people, are, if, if one of those realities are true, that are deep, deep doo-doo. Now, what do we say in Judaism? This is to Jim's point. And this is once again the Talmud. We talk about Lama Ba, this other world, the thing that we're building towards, like you spoke about so eloquently, Jim. Uh, but what are we saying? Who's this world for? People that invest in their spiritual reality today 
reap the spiritual benefits tomorrow. Like uh, like uh, like TJ referenced that we spoke about about earlier. Right now we're building the spiritual reality that we're going to have when the physical uh, uh, facade is stripped away. Where does the well, go after that? I'm sorry. Where does that's going to be a silly question? Where does the neshama go ahead? Go after death. After death. That's a good question. That's a very. It's actually not a silly question at all. Um, and the Talmud does talk about it. It doesn't exactly give us a timeline because we have a few different uh, what we call them epics. Let's say E P O C H. Um, we have the idea of Mashiach, we have the idea of Ganadin, we have the idea of Chesamesim, and we have the idea of Olam Abba. And we also have perhaps a fifth idea called Laatid Lavo. So it's not clear as to exactly what comes when, what comes where, and what, it, what is the exact process. Um, uh, are the, um, I can tell you what the mainstream position is, uh, most likely position, because, like I said, we don't have very, very clear directions, uh, directives as to what is actually, and this is by design, by the way, because it's not something which is really valuable for us. You know, like Jim mentioned, that we don't talk about what happens after we die. Uh, it's, it's not discussed. Show me any one place in the Torah where it's mentioned. Well, it may be hinted at, a bunch of times it's hinted, but it's never spoken about clearly. Well, everything in this world is. You know why? Because that's an artificial way to get, some, get someone inspired. If I say, oh, you're going to be burned in the hottest fires in the world, right? Well, is that true or not? Right? Well, I could say that and everyone will be spooked and they'll follow what I say. But is that what the Torah wants? To us to be compelled by fears that may be made up, maybe not? No. Therefore, all the Torah's predictions, they're dealing with things that we see in this world. And, and I'll get to in a second. And that's why, uh, to, 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 to take that idea a little further, the Torah doesn't give us exact, uh, or, or maybe it does, but it's certainly not overtly uh, expressed. Uh, exact timeline of what happens exactly after someone dies. I can tell you what the mainstream p- opinion is. So it said, bodies put in the ground. That's self-explanatory. The soul I- exists. Uh, we have one one statement in the Talmud, just a, a line that the soul is floating like a bird. Wander around? Huh? Wanders around? No, it says it, it's floating like a bird. Oh, okay. um, the idea of, 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 of Gehenna, of purgatory, what does that mean? When does that play a part? The idea of Ganeiden. Uh, but ultimately, the end game, according to everyone, is Alam Abba. That's the end game. But either way, I think that this is, that's, it's probably not so important. That's why we don't have so much information, detailed information. I didn't forget about you, Jim. Um, but that's why, uh, what we know for sure is that the soul exists, continues to exist, and will not be extinguished. Unless, uh, uh, right, if we count out it's anyway in circumstances. Uh, and therefore, the idea of Olam Abba, which is the end game, right? We say that how do you get it? Well, you get it by investing in, in your spiritual self now, and then once the physical is removed, well, that's what you have. You have the spiritual reality that you built, uh, and therefore it's not just for Jews. Of course, Jews we have, like we said, amplified responsibilities and amplified opportunities. But everyone in the world, everyone has mitzvahs, and everyone has opportunities to be good, and if they're good, well, that accrues towards their spiritual reality. And they will get to reap the benefits of Lama Ba as well. So, thankfully, like we said, thankfully for humanity, we happen to be right. And therefore, it's possible that the good people in the world, regardless of which religion, so long as they're good people, um, or righteous people, maybe we'll call them, the, the Hasidim, the righteous of the nations, 
they'll have a portion in the eternal in the eternal world, in the spiritual world. Jim, you were saying. So you answered the question. I did. Thank you. I don't remember at all where we were before before Michael's question. Where were we? Turn the tape back. What were we saying? <laughs> We spoke about my mom. Oh, we spoke about my mom. My grave, uh, womb. <laughs> Somebody thinks you're bad. Like you mentioned, Maimonides says nine out of twelve hours. Yeah. Would be, uh, what, what is the philosophy in, you know, in Judaism about that? So, like for example, you know, when we were in the desert, we started twenty-four-seven. Oh yeah. Right. And God said, no. You gotta get out of the desert. You gotta go in the land of Israel. You gotta do your thing. You gotta work. Gotta so, live, live as a human. Live as a human. So what? What, what is? Uh, what is Listen. So, so, so the Torah tells us that he needs to be normal life to study Torah day and night. Now, I'm, I, I am not the one to say that Maimonides' directive is not true, or it's not relevant. It's not modern. Or it's we're not going to discard Maimonides, um, for sure. Do I expect everyone here, myself included, studying hours a day? No. Um, the, what, what's the minimum? Let's talk about the minimum. The minimum. The Torah says the minimum is well, day and night. Well, what do you what do you do day and night? What's the minimum? The minimum is saying the Shema. The Shema is a, is a, a paragraph from the Torah. You say the Shema in the morning, Shema at night. Well, you fulfill the mitzvah. Uh, but I think that the idea is, is a more important idea, like the, the the global idea versus the specific idea. Our whole lives. What are we living for? What are we living for? Are we living for the temporary world or are we living for the permanent world? <clears throat> That's the question. What's this world that we see? You know, this 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 world that we partake in. Is right. is it physical? Is, is the physical world, is it permanent or not? Uh, if you uh, keep a misbot, misbot all the time, you study Torah all the time, right? Oh yeah, of course. And that's what the Torah, the Torah is, does, it's amazing though, to take your idea a little further here. Well, what, don't take the Torah, right? What does the word Torah mean? Torah means instructions. Okay, instructions. What are these instructions? If you read these instructions, you'll say these are instructions that, if you just read it, give this average guy, okay, read these instructions, get back to me. What do you think the author's intentions were? You would say, well, the author's intentions were to make the adherence miserable. You can't do this, you can't do that. You have to do this, you have to do that. That's what you would think. You can't eat this, you can't eat this, you can't eat this, you can't eat this, you can't eat this. All the things you cannot eat. Oh, a few things you could eat. It's okay. <laughs> you know, all the things you can't do on Shabbat. You know? Well, you could theoretically do a few things on Shabbat, you know? There was, there was, there was, there was this one rabbi that said that if, that if someone on Shabbat, if they wanted to fulfill everything, the best way to do it is just sit in a chair like this and not move. Why? Because even if they touch their beard and they pull out a hair from their beard, well, they could be transgressing Shabbat. It's like almost impossible. How, how, so much is prohibited. And it's just Shabbat. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs. There's lots and lots and lots of mitzvahs. What's the idea? Is God trying to make us miserable? It's just this evil, demonic deity that wants to make us miserable? Is that what it's about? Or let's look at, let's look at it entirely different. Now, in, in light of everything we spoke about tonight, the Almighty, in His kindness is trying to nudge us towards a life of of investing in our permanent reality. And how do you invest in your permanent reality? What does that demand? What does it demand? It demands that you eschew your temporary reality. You have to learn to say no to the physical 
in order to accept and to invest and to submerge yourself in the spiritual. You have to. So Torah says, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. My goodness. All those things that it's telling you don't do are things that you would have done if this is the only world we've got. Every single one of the mitzvahs that say don't 365 things we're told don't do. Every single one of those things is something that we would have done if this is the only world we've got. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. Do the math. Every single one of them. You say no. He's, I, no, I'm uh, saying I, Ben's I, dubious. I'm not saying yes or no. Just You're surprised. What I'm saying so, is... When we, when we, a common question we get, this is a common question that people get, does God really care, God of the cosmos, does he really care for eating a cheeseburger? Is that so important to God? A cheeseburger. That's a common question that you should, that you should get, right? It's a very good question. It's a good question. Is that really what's on God's mind? That's what the agenda, we have the million migrants from Syria, you know, we have the, the bombings today, they started in Syria. We have the election coming up. There's a lot of big things that are on the agenda. Netanyahu spoke today in the United Nations. That's what God should deal with. Not the what exactly, I'm putting a slice of cheese in my burger or not. That's what God cares about. It's a good question. No. It's a good question. I think it's a very legitimate question. And this is to expand on the point, Ben, that you uh, want to be expand upon. And I, I would say, maybe let's say God doesn't care about it. Let's assume God, let's, let's assume there's nothing really evil about meat and cheese. Let's assume that. But it is something that someone would do if they, all they cared about is this world. Correct? Because it's delicious, allegedly. I've never had one. So if someone lived in this world, and this is the only world you've got, well, then, of course, you've got to maximize the pleasures. You have the most delicious foods. And God tells us no. No, because you cannot have. Maybe it's, there's nothing evil about cheeseburgers. Maybe it's purely arbitrary. Still, think about the value. God is teaching us, is, is creating this muscle that we're going to hopefully use of saying no to the physical world, of, of realizing that it's temporary, of sitting in the sukkah. Isn't that valuable on its own, even if there's nothing wrong with cheeseburgers? Then it, it reframes everything we have with the Torah. The Torah is God's guidebook for us to maximize our life. And in order to do that, we have to redirect our focus. The Yetzirah pushes us to this world. God is pushing us to the next world, to the permanent world, to the ultimate reality. That's what's going on over here. And what God has to do in the mitzvahs is tell us there are things that you cannot do. And maybe maybe they're, they're arbitrary. Maybe there's really nothing evil about meat and cheese and milk, whatever. It's like, it, that's, not, that's not the point. The point is that the point is is that when we say no to that, to you know, to, to this indulgence we are developing ourselves in this paradigm, in this model of saying no to the, to, to the, to the physical, embrace the spiritual. Go ahead. 
the problem is that the cheeseburger and everything else that this world has got to offer, we can physically see it. If well, that's <laughs> if of God course. Go ahead. Had let's say a viewable advertisement of the world to come, mm -hmm. we have no problems. Oh yeah. Well, remember that I'm saying what God could have made it much simpler. If there's no Yitzhara, then there's the the, the whole. Uh, the whole mirage of this world being permanent only exists because we have the Yitzhara. We remind the Yitzhara of our death, of the day of our death, and then the, his power dissipates. Of course, God could have made it a lot easier. Of course, I agree with you. You know, God could have made us just souls, and then of course we would have just done just soulful things. Of course. But the whole purpose of the world is that success is not guaranteed. And there is this conflict, this conflict, which we could call by multiple names, body, soul, free will. All these uh, are descriptions of the human being torn, being conflicted, and being drawn in multiple directions. And that is what makes life meaningful, because we alone are going to, to, to determine what's going to be our reality. So yes, God could have. Remember, let, 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 me, let me give you an example of, of what you want. Every time someone sins, they get a zap. Like as if they stuck the finger into an outlet. Well, that, then who's going to sin? <laughs> Would you sin? Would I sin? <laughs> if you know that a zap's coming right then. What's a zap? Huh? A zap, like an electric, uh, like a like someone takes a cattle prod. Yeah, anytime you lie. That's the punishment that judge gave last week, where you wear like a, that electric belt, and then you get zapped all the time whenever. Right, but is is th that's clearly not the model in this world that God created for us? He could have, and you know what? A lot less people will be sitting. Right. Like he's like, you know, would you if every time you lied, you get a zap, your body shakes, convulses just for a few seconds. Who's gonna lie? <laughs> 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 Let's not do that again. <laughs> right. So so that's not the model. Um, and that's why the reward is not there. Imagine every time someone did a mitzvah and suddenly they just look in their pocket and there's stacks and stacks of hundred dollar bills. Every time, everyone would do mitzvahs. So those, the, the, you know, that's not the model. The model is is that we have the opportunity to reject God. It's possible for a human to reject God, as as crazy as that sounds. And that conflict is what makes life meaningful. So either way, um, I want to just conclude here. Um, just kind of bring this all together. And we're sitting in the circle. What's the lesson for us? And I think it's it's really a lasting lesson. And if you were to ask me of a mitzvah that demonstrates a core value of Judaism, a core principle of Judaism, I would say that sukkah is a very powerful one. And it's not just a mitzvah that's a seven-day mitzvah. Let's remember what happened millions of years ago that no one, none of us can remember. Of course, that's part of it. But what, what, what about us? What does it mean to us? Talmud tells us, leave your permanent house. Permanent is relative here. Move into your temporary. Okay. How permanent is your life here? Live a temporary life. Live with the realization that this life, this iteration is temporary. 
And your permanent house, well, is that temporary as well? You better believe it is. Varying degrees of, temp- of temporosity. <laughs> no one called me on that word. <laughs> oh, thanks. It, it's like a permanent marker. It, it says permanent because it lasts a long time. It lasts longer than really an air pencil. Not it's not permanent. That's right. And that's the world that we live in. That is the world we live in. We are being duped. We have a mirage. We have a misrepresentation of reality due to the Yetzirah that God wants us to have. When we think about death, well, that power disappears. If you think about death, you realize it, you know, it's, it's a reality. We know that everyone's going to die, and therefore this world is temporary. But the hope is that when we sit in the temporary dwelling, we also take stock of our behavior and our life and our priorities and say, are we really investing so much of our life in, in, in a reality that what's the end game? The end game is Reem of Atalea. It's maggots and worms. That's what the Talmud says, the Mishnah says. It doesn't sound very appealing, but that's where we're all headed. Maggots and worms. Well, that's what happens when someone... This body is going to be eaten by maggots and worms. And... That, whoa, what happened to humanity? What happened to the grandiose ideas of humanism? That's... Where did it come from? The future drop. Where are you going to? To the place of maggots and worms. That is a very sobering thought. And that will actually sober us up from the delusion that the Yetzirah creates. And when, 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 when we sit in a sukkah and we think about those thoughts, we have to change. You know, We have to live a life of investing more and more in the purpose. Now listen, Maimonides had high standards. Maimonides says nine hours a day study, and even during the three hours of work, think about Torah. Right? That's just an, an illustration of what, the, how far this could go. But we have to take some steps on the holiday. This is the holiday, the seven days here. We're supposed to think about this idea. We have to take some steps in our lives to invest more in our permanent reality and maybe hold back a little bit in our temporary reality. And you know what? Like we said with the cheeseburger. Maybe it's not... The mitzvahs, maybe they're, maybe they're all arbitrary. Maybe God doesn't really care about this cheeseburger. Maybe. Let's assume that that's right. I don't know, I'm not saying that is right, but let's assume it is right. Still, anytime I withhold from the, from, the phys- from the physical, I withhold from the temporary, a little bit of my focus moves on to the permanent. And by doing this, we'll have more fulfilling lives. Like, like Jim mentioned, uh, before he abandoned us, but Jim, Jim mentioned, uh, that wasn't nice, but... Uh, that's a joke. Uh, uh, but Jim mentioned that we're building something here. And think about how, how what, of, what, what value do we, you know, do we accrue to our life, just feeling of fulfillment, contentment, when we realize that we're building something permanent. We're building something eternal. Isn't that a great way to live? Isn't it better than building the house of cards that eventually is just going to topple? Isn't it better than building the house on the beach that you know is going to be swamped over in a couple of years? Isn't it better to invest in something more permanent? Isn't that a better way to live? It is. That's what we have to demand ourselves from ourselves every year we sit in the sukkah. And really, it's, a, it's, it's an idea that accompanies us throughout our Judaism throughout the year. We revisit it again from a different angle on, on Passover. But that's what we have to demand from ourselves. Let's become greater people. 
Let's refocus. Let's redouble our efforts to become great people. We could do it. We could do it. We have the abilities. We have a very powerful, so very potent soul. We can do it, and we will do it. You know, this is the time to spur ourselves to action, guys. Thanks a lot for uh, for having us here. This was wonderful. Is there a question there? Go ahead. Listening to what? A teaching the other day by okay. uh, Rabbi Manus Friedman. Yeah. Have you ever heard? Yeah, he's a famous rabbi, Chabad rabbi. So it goes back to kind of, it was interesting. He said, you know, you need to choose something that matters. The analogy he gave on, in an instant of, of what God said from a Torah perspective, he said, he says, it's like this. This, uh, this child was asked by his mother to bring tea to her, to her every day bring your tea. And he did this for 50 years, and at the end of 50 years he tells me, you know what, I never drank the tea. Every time you brought it to me, I just dumped it out. I don't even like it. But it's still a mitzvah. She says, well, why, why did you do that? 50 years. Well, I did it because I wanted you to get close to me. Get close to you? You're a monster. Why would you make me do that if you're not even drinking the tea? Sounds great in the beginning, but if you really think about it, she's, a, she's horrible, right? So this is what he's bringing. He says, so it wasn't to, to bring the child closer, right? She wasn't even drinking the tea, so that's a horrible thing. To think that, that the commandments and the mitzvah that we do are for not is, is that's a horrible thing. You think, God, this is terrible at the end. But the way that he puts it, he's... Well, I, I just... Uh, go ahead. I'll let you finish, but yeah. I... I didn't say that, that, no, that no, it's for no, not. No, saying, but even if it was, that's right. That's right. Go ahead. Good, good, good. Just trying to vindicate myself here. No, you were right. You were right. But he said, if you read from the but when you go back to the Torah and you read it from the from a different perspective and you read it this way because it says God said keep my commandments keep my Shabbos my Shabbat he, said, he didn't say keep yours he said keep mine so they're his and what he's doing is allowing us to participate in his commandments participate in keeping his Shabbat homes keeping things that are his that are precious to him and therefore we become precious to him by keeping those I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting very powerful. That kind of adds to what you were saying is, we're not doing it right to 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 better ourselves in a sense, but we're doing it to participate in something that's precious to God, our Creator, and, mm-hmm. and He gives us that opportunity. To participate. So you're saying not only is it valuable for ourselves, but it also matters to God. That's what He's saying. The cheeseburger indeed matters, yeah. but even if it didn't, we have value from it. Right. Okay, everyone. Thanks a lot. Lots of fun as usual. Um, 